Morning, GBC. Great to be together today. Good to see everybody as we keep moving into a new year, which is crazy, right? So here we go. Uh, Today, we're going to continue our series in Psalms, exploring the problem of pain and seeing what God says in relation to our pain. Today, we're going to be in Psalm 73. We'll move there in a few minutes. And the title of the message captures the question that's going to be in our text. Why are the faithless hashtag blessed? Maybe you have that on your car this morning. That's okay. But why are the faithless hashtag blessed? We're going to see that in Psalm 73 today. And Psalm 73 is going to explore a question that all of us can wrestle with in our doubts. A question that's lurking deep in our hearts, whether we choose to give voice to it or not, it's there. And the question is, If God is good, then why do good things happen to bad people? It's a question that's been throughout human history that echoes in our hearts now today too, that we bring with us here in this moment as we're going to hear from God's word. And it seems to me, as I've been reflecting on Psalm 73 this week, preparing to preach, it seems there's different ways each of us can handle doubt, isn't there? We can either do the Lloyd Braun way of handling doubt Who knows who Lloyd Braun is? Yes, my favorite Seinfeld episode, Lloyd Braun. In order to handle his anger management issues, whenever he would feel angry, he would say, serenity now, serenity now. And he would keep saying that until he had a complete emotional breakdown. Serenity now and sanity later, Lloyd Braun would say, right? So we can do that with our doubts. Serenity now about my doubts. Stuff them, put them in a box deep in our heart. Or the pendulum could swing the other way with our doubts, and you were actually controlled by your doubts. Okay, they speak to you. They tell you what's real, what's not real, what the good life is or not. So we either stuff our doubts or we're led by our doubts. But Psalm 73 is going to show us how God calls his people to handle doubt. That is what Psalm 73 is going to confront us graciously with today. And you might think, yeah, Mike, that's all well and good. I'm a Christian. I don't struggle with doubts. You're lying to yourself. All of us struggle with doubts. And the reason I can say that is because who the human author is of Psalm 73, we're going to read here in a minute. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph, who was the public leader of worship for the people of Israel. First Chronicles chapter 25 shows that he's the leader of the temple choir. So to put it another way, This amazing psalm, Psalm 73, was written by a ministry leader in charge, in charge of leading God's people in worship. And yet he's the one who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Psalm 73 that's going to draw out the truths about doubt that each of us, all of us, non-Christian Christian, can struggle with. And then there's two other quick things I just want to have like um, as a foothold for us as we're in Psalm 73 before I read the text together to see the intent in Psalms, like we're exploring Psalms, a problem of pain. Whenever you open the book of Psalms, you kind of have a GPS system going on in your mind and heart and know where in Psalms you are. So Psalms is intentionally structured into five different books, five different sections in one book. Psalm 73 is the first chapter of the third section of Psalms. Okay, so it's kind of where we are. The third section in five total sections in Psalms. And the third section 
the focus, the essence of it, when you look at it, it's where God's people are struggling as they long to experience the steadfast love of the Lord. Okay, so that's where Psalm 73 lands. And then lastly, the most repeated word in Psalm 73 is the word heart. You'll see it six different times. So heart, if this is interesting, we're gonna explore this more in a minute. It's the most dominant organ in a chapter of the Bible that's about doubt. Heart is given six times. So this shows us our struggle with doubt is really a struggle about our desires and what we want, what's at the core of who we are. The word heart, again, given six times in 28 verses in Psalm 73. So before we read it, just real quick, I just wanna say this. Think of all the saints in church history who love the book of Psalms, right? It was the book our Lord Jesus Christ quoted the most in his ministry here on earth. And the reason why I love Psalms, probably you have in your walk with the Lord, is because of how it um, points us in the reality of our struggles in this life to the truth of who our God is. Psalms highlights that praying our doubts and our questions and our unmet desires is a good thing. That's what God calls us to do. There's this guy named Derek Kidner. He wrote a well-known commentary on the book of Psalms and listen to what he wrote about the raw and emotional prayers throughout the book. This is Derek Kidner. The very presence of such prayers in scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we are desperate. Isn't that beautiful? God knows how we speak when we are desperate. So your questions, your doubts, your struggles, they belong with God as we pour out our heart to him in prayer. So please turn with me now, if you haven't done so, in a real old school physical Bible in front of you or screen in front of you, put the finger on the text and follow with me as I read aloud Psalm 73. This is God's word. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let me pray for us before we begin our time in Psalm 73 together. Please bow with me in prayer. Father God, we need you today. Whether we feel it or not, we desperately need you. We need to hear from you today through your word. So Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to treasure wonderful things today from your word. Father, please, through the preaching of your word today, be our strength and be our portion. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to see three movements in Psalm 73 today, okay? The first movement is in verses 1 through 15, and we're going to call that struggle. The second movement, recovery, in verses 16 through 22. And then last, the third movement is triumph. That's in verses 23 through 28. So first, struggle. Again, I want you to see this in God's word. Put your finger on the page in front of you. Look down at what God's word says, beginning in verses one through three. Look at the struggle that Asaph has here. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So verse one presents a truth that God is good to his people. We can all say, amen. That is true, amen. God is good to his people. But then Asaph, again, remember who he is, the leader of the temple choir, this dedicated ministry leader, says his steps nearly slipped because he was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. So that envy that he's calling out made him doubt that God was good. This was a ministry leader doubting the goodness of God. So the goodness of God and the prosperity of the faithless, they were at odds in Asaph's mind and in his heart, right? How could God actually truly be good in view of the godless being comfortable and prosperous, like what our text tells us, right? So there's this tension that Asaph is experiencing and leaning into. And the psalmist here, Asaph, confesses that his doubt begins with what? With envy, which is always the case if you were to do an autopsy on doubt. Doubt starts somewhere. Notice the progression that's right here in front of you on the pages of God's word in verse three. His steps had nearly slipped because why? He says it, because he was envious, because he what? He saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what did Asaph see? Verse three says, he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And when we hear prosperity here, yeah, it's hashtag blessed, right? But it's not like gold chains and diamonds and swag and the nicest car. Really the word here for prosperity is shalom. 
So it's not less than riches and everything you think hashtag blessed, but it's way more than that. What the word shalom means here, it means peace, ease, well-being. So it's a life and a posture of ease and comfort and like you got everything you need in yourself, right? That's what he's envious of here, the prosperity of the wicked. So when he says he sees the prosperity, the shalom of the wicked, the wicked here can also be interpreted as faithless. So he's seeing the shalom of the faithless that makes him envy, that makes him doubt God. So the problem and the conflict here for Asaph is that he looked out around him. He wanted this good life, didn't he? That the faithless were having a life of well-being and peace, a happy life. And because we're going to see later in verse 14, it's not only that the faithless weren't having this or the faithless are having the good life, faithful aren't, but it gets real personal later on in our text. The pain that he's seen that the faithful have, Asaph is experiencing too. So he's stricken every day. He's asking if the faithful, you know, are afflicted, the faithless are prospering and I'm suffering, how can God be good? So I'm summarizing the battle, the struggle that's happening inside Asaph. But at least that's how Asaph is interpreting things, isn't it? Psalm 73, when you really press into it, it lifts the hood on the engine of doubt. The doubt that was in Asaph and the doubt that's inside all of us too. Because doubt, again, it always presents itself as something benign, that it's just like something that an honest intellectual is going to ask. But doubt's not. It always has mixed motives because we're sinners. And Asaph calls it out here. His doubt didn't just start with doubt. It started with envy. So doubt may have like some intellectual truths to it, right? How can the faithless prosper if God is good? There's an element of intellectual, like logical reasoning there, but it's a lot more than that. Doubt really in Psalm 73, it runs on the tracks of the soul. That's what's happening with doubt. It's been said that doubt is when you see something that your spiritual heart can't process, right? And again, doubt happens to all of us. It happened to Asaph, it happens to me, it happens to you. It happens to the saints that have gone before us. And again, Asaph didn't just like all of a sudden see the prosperity of the faithless, right? It's not like all of a sudden it dawned on him, oh, people that aren't following God seem to be really happy. He'd always seen that. That's always the experience of God followers in every time and age, right? He had known about injustice before, but now verse three says he saw it, right? He saw the prosperity of the faithless. And again, why is that? We really wanna unpack doubt and envy here. It's because of verse 14, because he was suffering himself. He's, he's suffering himself. He sees the faithless prospering. He sees it all and is like, can God really be good? So Asaph sees his own suffering, even as this worship leader in Israel, he sees the faithless prospering all around him. And then what is he doing? He's doubting God. He's doubting that God is who he said he is, that God is good. But again, there's something underneath his doubt, fueling his doubts. Asaph, what does he say again himself in verse three? I really want our takeaway to be this. It's in God's word. I'm, I'm not just saying this. It's in verse three. He was envious of the prosperity of the faithless. So envy is the engine of doubt. It's always the case. Envy is the engine of doubt. 
And why is that? Because envy is an interpretation problem, okay? You think your doubts are truly honest. They're not. They're tainted. They have mixed motives. And we're like Asaph. If envy is an interpretation problem, each of us struggle with doubt. Each of us struggle with envy because we're all interpreters too. So every day, think about your last week, this week you're going to go into. Every day, you are interpreting the world around you. You're interpreting your own thoughts, your own feelings. Things may be happening with loved ones, family, friends, things happening far from you. You're interpreting reality, seeing your circumstances and coming to a particular set of conclusions, whether you know you're doing that or not, right? So envy is the result of your interpretation, right? If you're being envious, it's because you're interpreting that person or persons doesn't deserve what they have and I deserve it more. So you're envious. You're making an interpretation, a conclusion about the way things are. And in that envy, in that flow, the engine of it, you're determining that you know better than God and that he's not really good, so you can't trust him. Okay, so envy is an interpretation problem. Envy makes us see things through the lenses of unbelief. That's what Asaph's going through. This is what we go through too. So look down at verses four through 12, feel this struggle he's in, and then look at verses four through 12 as Asaph describes what the faithless are like. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I bet if you're being honest, you have experienced that same thing in your life through the oppression of the unrighteous. That's the headlines you saw last week. Those are the headlines you're gonna see this week. Verses four through 12 in Psalm 73. Verse 12 summarizes it well. The faithless are carefree and increasing in riches with no concerns for God. Asaph here, he isn't saying like, everyone who doesn't follow God never gets sick, hashtag blessed, they're always living their best life now. That's not what he's saying. But in general, the faithless under this sinful sun in this world have an easier life. And if you like take a deep breath and think about it, that's true. And the reason why it's true is because it's a lot easier to go with the stream than swim up against it. So the faithless in general are going to prosper more. Okay, the reality is the faithless do prosper in this life. Whether those are the faithless in your family, faithless in your neighborhood, in your school, on your team, or in your workplace, they are going to prosper in this life. And in view of this, Asaph is pouring out his heart to God here in Psalm 73, isn't he? He's saying, God, if you're really good to your people, then why do the faithless have such easy and happy lives? Don't you judge the faithless and reward the faithful? Like, can you hear his struggle here? And then just to compound things, look down at verses 13 through 15. 
Listen to the place Asaph is in and what he says here. This is in God's word. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. So not only do the faithless prosper, Asaph is interpreting what he thinks is his own faithful life and concluding that, what does he say? All in vain, I have kept my heart clean. Remember, this is the ministry leader who's in this struggle. At the end of verse 15, this ministry leader of the temple choir says that if he had given voice to this struggle, if he had verbalized this, if he had spoken out loud with his struggle of spiritual envy, he would have betrayed the generation of your children. So Asaph here in verse 15, he's stuck in self-talk and the fog of envying the prosperity of the faithless, okay? And like Asaph, we all struggle to interpret things rightly and to believe that God is good. So this kind of brings us in the flow of Psalm 73. So what do you do with your doubts? What do you do? That brings us to the second movement in our text, and that's recovery. We're going to see that in verses 16 through 22. So look down verses 16 through 22. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So Asaph recovers, the blinders fall off of, his, off of his eyes, the wet towel is taken off of his heart, right? When he enters into the sanctuary of God. In the sanctuary, what's happening here? He's doubting his doubts. He's being skeptical of his skepticism. He's deconstructing his envy in the sanctuary of God. He begins to see rightly and then interpret rightly when he began to see things again from God's perspective, not his own perspective, right? In verse 21 and 22, he sees himself rightly and then he sees reality for what it really is again. He says when he was in the sinkhole of spiritual envy, the sinkhole of doubt, he was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, toward God. Wow. What a description of being stuck in spiritual envy and doubt. You're like a beast towards God when you see things from your perspective and not from God's eternal perspective. So in the place of worship, in the sanctuary, what happens? His spiritual operating system is rebooted, right? And he discerns the end of the faithless. He thought the faithless were those that were living the hashtag blessed life forever and ever and ever was like his unspoken presupposition, but it's not true. What does God say about the faithless? When seen from God's point of view, the prosperity of the faithless is as fleeting and meaningless as a dream, as a phantom, it says. So really, Asaph's spiritual sight and even his affections, again, his heart is recovered and rekindled. He sees that for a believer, the pain of this world and I'm not dismissing it, real true pain, 
the real pain of this world is the closest to hell God's people will ever get, okay? And then he's also saying, for the unbeliever who spurns God, who mocks God, who thinks they know better than God, the brief and fleeting pleasures of this life, of this world, is the closest they will ever get to heaven. Wow. Asaph sees that as he enters into the sanctuary of what the prosperity of the faithless really is and sees himself rightly in his struggle with spiritual envy and doubt. So remember, he begins to see this when he what? Feel the movement in the text. When he enters the sanctuary of God. In verse 22, he sees that he was like a beast towards God, brutish and ignorant. And I want to press this. He was like a beast towards God in his spiritual envy. And just just take a minute to think about it. For those of you that own pets, you own an animal, you own a beast, our Labradoodle probably wouldn't classify as a beast, but it's an animal, right? Think about the animals for those of you that are pet owners. Do they love you for you? Or do they love you for what you give them? Don't they love you for what you give them, right? Their treats, a warm home. Like I don't get home and Oliver's like, man, tell me about your day today. Like, you know, where are you struggling? He doesn't, he just wants to be fed and go play. That's really what Asaph was like here. He was in his spiritual envy, wanting to follow God for the good things God's gonna give him rather than loving God for God in himself, in his person. He was like a beast toward God in his spiritual envy. That's what's happening here. Again, just like the beasts in your home, they love you for your gifts. They don't love you as the giver of the gifts. Same thing here when you're stuck in spiritual envy. So Asaph's obedience here, it wasn't really to please God. Instead, this ministry leader wanted God to please him. Like his religious performance was really putting God in his debt. Like he was earning extra credit points with God for his life of obedience. And then when he doesn't have the good life he thinks he deserves, it throws him into this doubt and spiritual envy spiral. That's what's happening here. Again, he wasn't coming to God necessarily for God's sake to get God, but to get good things from God. Whoo! Don't each of us do the exact same thing? And we do, we really do, whether you wanna believe it or not. When we're doubting God's goodness, when I am doubting God's goodness because of envy, it reveals a heart that isn't treasuring God, but instead treasuring the good things God can give us. The good things we think he, he should and we deserve to get from him. That's what's happening in spiritual envy. Then when we think God's holding out on, that, on us, right? Then that puts us in that spiral. I'm doubting what's underneath my doubt. It's envy because I think I know better than God. I'm not getting the good things instead of making it about God himself, okay? So it's worth reflecting on here in this moment, hearing the sermon. I would ask you to reflect on it this next week in your own individual times with the Lord. Reflect on it in your community group. Is God your treasure or is your treasure really the good things God gives you? And then how do you know, okay? We need to lean into that as a church family in community with each other.
And if that's you today, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you in this moment as he does, has done with me this last week in preparing to preach Psalm 73, that your tendency is to worship the gifts more than the giver, let me encourage you to confess and repent of that. Name it. Say it out loud like Asaph did. I am struggling with spiritual envy. I am doubting the goodness of God. God, I confess and repent of that. I want to love you and trust you for you, not for what I think I deserve or should get from you. So confess and repent. And then turn to Jesus, right? And draw near to God through Jesus, not through your spiritual performance like Asaph was struggling with here in Psalm 73. So Asaph here, he's stuck. He's deep, deep in the struggle of spiritual envy. Effectively, Asaph was asking, like when you boil it all down at like a functional level, he's asking himself, is following God worth it? Is the well-being of the faithless, the prosperity of the faithless better than God? That's where he is. That's the essence or the heart of his struggle. And why does this struggle, the prosperity of the faithless and the difficulty for the faithful make Asaph and still make us today doubt God's goodness? It makes us question if God is better than the fleeting pleasures of sin, right? You've all done that accounting in your head and your heart before. Is following God worth it? Is God holding back happiness from me? Is God enough to really satisfy me and make me happy? So underneath the struggle of Psalm 73 and what's behind that struggle in my heart and your heart is the same struggle that began in the beginning of the story, right? Back in Genesis 3, the conflict that began in the garden. Because in Genesis 3, what did the serpent do? He injected a lie into the human race that each of us are a part of. The lie is that God's gonna hold out on you that God is stingy and he doesn't have enough to make us really happy. So the lie that's behind and underneath our envy is the lie that fuels the struggle of Psalm 73, the struggle each of us are in, whether we know it or not. The lie we believe, again, is that God isn't generous, that he's holding back the good life and happiness from us, that he's reluctant to satisfy us. Again, the lie is that God is stingy. Because why would we envy, right, the temporary prosperity of the faithless if we really treasured God at a deep heart level? Then the prosperity of the faithless, it wouldn't hold a candle to who God is and the treasures you have in him. But we don't believe it. We think God's stingy. He hasn't told us the whole story, right? Like he may be, like is my grandma that gave me a quarter for allowance for raking her leaves like for two days. God's not like that. But we think he is. We think he's stingy. So we struggle with envy because he doesn't give us what we think we deserve, okay? The lie of God being stingy again, I want Psalm 73 to shepherd the flock among us. I want it to land on you today because it's God's word doing his work in God's people through his, through his spirit. The lie of God being stingy is in each of our hearts and this lie frames how we interpret our desires and the world around us. The lie is the soil that the weed of envy grows in. The soil is God is stingy, the weed is envy, and it's gonna have the fruit of spiritual doubt in your life. Those are the dynamics and the mechanics of what's happening here in Psalm 73. So as Asaph entered the sanctuary, we are entering the sanctuary today. 
and we need to ask and reflect together. What desires are in your heart right now? What desires are in your heart that the lie of envy has been feeding? What and who have you been envying and why? Where are you believing the lie that God is stingy in your life? And I'm just going to keep pressing this. For, for you, maybe you're starting to believe that the lie of God being stingy, that God really isn't going to make you happy. Maybe you're starting to believe that and cultivate it. Nobody else knows, but that weed's starting to grow in your heart. And because of that, you're starting to cast Jesus aside to follow the sinful desires of your heart. Maybe nobody else knows yet, but that's the trajectory and the path you're going on. Maybe, honestly, maybe you're wanting to have that affair. Maybe nobody else knows, but you're starting to, God's holding out on me. I deserve to be happy, so therefore. Maybe you're starting to really believe the lie that living for status and stuff is gonna satisfy you. Maybe you no longer care about resisting temptation in following Jesus. Or maybe you're already there, right? Or maybe you're not there quite yet. Not yet, but it's just one more step. This week, you're there. So what do we do with that? When you're at that place, it's because you've decided that God, his word and his ways, they don't have first place in your life anymore. You don't think God's gonna make you happy. So you start to self-justify looking for satisfaction, looking for happiness in places other than God. It's all logical. It all makes sense. You have to deconstruct this. You have to doubt your spiritual envy and doubt your doubts. So where are your hopes for happiness taking you lately? Maybe in those places in your life nobody knows about yet, but where are your hopes for happiness taking you? Where are you doubting God's goodness in your life? What do you feel you deserve to live the good life that the faithless have? So again, when did Asaph begin to see how envy was fueling his doubt? And when did he begin to doubt his doubts? As he entered the sanctuary of God. Where are we today? The sanctuary of God. So we need to doubt our doubts when we come to worship him. And I hope you can, you can feel the urgency of Psalm 73, right? Like this is a message each of us need today, right now. And I hope you can like feel again with like fresh appetite and taste buds, how important what we're doing right now really is. When we gather for church every Sunday, we are entering the sanctuary of God to reorient, to restory ourselves and one another with what is good and true and will ever fully really satisfy us. And that's God. You don't know the doubts of your brothers and sisters around you and those in this room that maybe don't know Jesus yet. When we gather every week, we restore ourselves to the gospel and what the real true good life is, who God is, the fleeting pleasures of sin are temporary, God will judge sin and only God satisfies the deep, deep desires of my heart. That's what we're doing to each other when we gather, just like what is happening here in Psalm 73. So when we gather as a church to hear God's word, to worship God through song, to partake of communion together, we're tangibly, like with your senses, reminding yourself and one another of who Jesus is and what he has done 
So each Sunday, we hear and taste and see the amazing truth of the gospel. And like Asaph, our sight is recovered, our spiritual operating system is rebooted, and we see God for who he is, not as stingy, but as fully and truly satisfying. That's what is true about us as God's people here from Psalm 73. Again, the gathering of the church every week, it restores us to rightly see the reality of who God is and who we are as we bring our temptations, our doubts, our unbelief, the suffering from this last week, the suffering that's gonna happen this week, we come here and we ground one another in the reality of the gospel and what is true and what is good. So church restores us to the gospel and realigns our hearts to our real treasure. And that's God himself, not just the good things that God can give us. All right, so, so far, Psalm 73, there's so much here. We've seen Asaph struggle with doubt and with spiritual envy, and then we see his recovery in the sanctuary and that he discerned that the happiness of the faithless is temporary, right? God reoriented him to the eternal reality of things, not just what's right in front of him with what he saw. Now in verses 23 through 28, we're going to see that God is better and that only God is a treasure who will satisfy you forever. So again, third and final movement, Psalm 73, verses 23 through 28. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. What a close to Psalm 73 and just the path we've seen Asaph on, right? These closing verses show that God is our greatest treasure and that being in relationship with God, being near to God is the good life that will satisfy you forever compared to the fleeting pleasures of sin that are all around us. The triumph in this last section of Psalm 73 is the triumph that God is always better. Your envy is lying to you. Doubt your doubts. Look with me at the sequence here, like see and feel the beauty of it. Verses 23 through 24, see the sequence of God's goodness and faithfulness. God took hold of my right hand. God guided me with his counsel. And in the end, God will receive me with glory. This is God's goodness on full display. God is not stingy. God grasps and guides and glorifies his people. It's all from him and to him and through him. You won't find happiness, true everlasting happiness outside of God. It's not possible. There's no such thing. So in view of God's amazing goodness and greatness, Asaph praises God. He praises God. The worship leader praises God in verse 25 by saying, and having thee, I desire nothing else on earth. Do you see how he's comparing the prosperity of the faithless and God, and it's not even close, okay? There's nothing else besides God that he desires when he wakes up to the reality of his spiritual envy and doubt in comparison to the goodness of God. 
God is always better. Only in God do we find satisfaction and happiness that lasts forever and ever and ever and ever, and there is no end. Other less, lesser pleasures prove wanting when compared to the eternal joy set before God's people. Do you see the degree that spiritual envy and doubt blinds you, right? And it makes your taste buds like settle for junk food when the everlasting satisfaction and glory of God is offered for us in the goodness of God. It's like Romans 8.18 says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worth comparing. Don't even waste my time. It's not worth comparing. So look at the amazing grace that Psalm 73 ends with. We should feel lovingly confronted and rebuked by Psalm 73, and yet we should also feel the goodness and graciousness of God in Psalm 73. And look with me how it ends. Verse 23, nevertheless, Asaph says, nevertheless, even though he doubted, even though he was stuck deep in the pit of spiritual envy, nevertheless, God is for him and not against him. God is the good life that he really wanted. And God is good towards Asaph. God is good to his people who struggle with doubt like each of us in this room. Nevertheless, God was holding Asaph's hand and guiding him even through his doubts and in the pit of his spiritual envy, just like he does for us. What a good and gracious and loving and kind God. So how could Asaph say this? So he's, he's been this deep struggle, right? And then he's kind of reoriented in the sanctuary, but how could like he say this in a way that would satisfy his doubts? Like this wasn't just like spiritual verbiage he was throwing around. How did he know that he know that nevertheless, God is this good and God is for him and with him and guides him? How did he know? He knew because of what he saw when he entered the sanctuary. Verse three, his eyes were seeing the prosperity of the faithless around him, but then he's reoriented and he truly sees. And what does he see as he enters the sanctuary? He sees the altar. He sees the sacrifice for his sin. And he knows that God is this good, that God will satisfy him because of what he sees as he enters the sanctuary. And it wasn't his innocence. Remember back in verse 13, right? All in vain have I kept my heart pure. Like he was just stuck in pride and self-righteousness. He's not bringing with that with him now as he enters the sanctuary, is he? He sees the altar. He sees the need for a sacrifice for his sin. He sees his need for someone else's righteousness, someone else's innocence as he enters the sanctuary because only Jesus fully has done what verse 13 says. Asaph can't, he doesn't, I can't, I don't, neither do you. Only Jesus is that good to be the sacrifice for our sin as we enter. Only Jesus perfectly kept verse 13. Only Jesus lived the perfect life each of us should live. 
And Jesus died the death each of us deserve for our spiritual envy, for our pride, for our sin of being satisfied with other things more than God. Only Jesus perfectly accomplished verse 13. And as we close, look at verse 26 with me. If you haven't memorized it, I would encourage you to do so. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what this is saying, right? That God is better than comfort, better than prosperity, better than a hashtag blessed kind of life. God is even better than life itself. That's what it's saying here. God is the eternal line. And this little life you're living right now is the dot on a line of eternity. Compare those two things. They don't add up. I want to help you like apply this, hear this. This hit home for me. Uh, I just want to tell you a brief story and we're going to end. I heard a story about a missionary back in the 1800s, a guy by the name of Alan Gardner, so that this guy's a missionary. He wants to tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus because of how great God is, like Psalm 73, 73 ends with, he wants to tell it. So he gets on this boat and he sails to an island off the coast of South America. He's supposed to be joined, you know, in a week or two by the rest of his missionary team, right? He kind of creates base camp. They're going to join him. They're going to bring the rest of the supplies, etc. But the rest of his team never made it. They never came. So Alan, he stays on the island, he's isolated for several weeks, and then he ends up starving to death. How can God be good if Alan Gardner starves to death going to tell other people about Jesus? So later, the rest team makes it for whatever reason, they were late, Alan's dead, they find his dead body, they find his journal. No joke, it's dated like the day before he dies. Listen to what is in Alan Gardner's journal. Psalm 34, verse 10, which says, I am overwhelmed with the sense of the goodness of God. He reads Psalm 34, 10. He applies it in his current circumstance, maybe in his doubt, right? And he says, I am overwhelmed in his suffering as he's starving to death with the goodness of God. He wrote that in his suffering, not in his prosperity. Sounds a lot like Psalm 73, 26, doesn't it? When your body fails, Psalm 73, 26 says, when your body fails and it will, whether later today, this next year, or 30, 50 years from now, your body's gonna fail. And when it does, God is yours forever. Heart here, it says in verse 26, when your heart fails, this just hit me in a new way this week. I hope it does you too. Heart here means like the seat of your person and who you are. It captures your mind, your will, your emotions, right? So when your heart fails, when your emotions fail, when dementia sets in and you can't remember who the people that you love in your life are, and maybe you even don't remember all the way who God is, when your heart fails, God is yours forever. When you're stuck in the feedback loop of your anxieties and your doubts and your depressions, God is your strength and your portion forever. When your heart fails, when your body fails, when your strength fails, God is your portion and your strength forever. That is how good God is. 
And remember, Psalm 73 is written to a doubter, just like us. God is so gracious and so good. So I want to ask you, do you think you can say that? That, but God is the strength of my portion and my life forever. Could you say that like Alan Gardner when the ships don't show up? Because someday they're not going to for your life. Someday the medication's not going to work. Someday your time is up in the short fleeting vapor of a life that we have on the dot of eternity. When the ship doesn't show up, can you say, but God is the strength and the portion of my heart forever. Walking with God, trusting him in this life of suffering and doubt, it can be really hard, can it? We're not pretending it's not when we come to Psalm 73. But doubting God and walking away from him because thinking that he's stingy and he's not going to make you happy, that is infinitely harder than following God and trusting him even when it doesn't make sense. Because anything other than God will fail you. Only God is truly stable and eternally satisfying. As we close, I want to leave you with a quote. Tim Keller said this, Live for beauty, but beauty fades. Live for money, but money fades. Live for success, but success fades. If you don't have God, you really don't have anything because everything is just slipping away from you. Therefore, it may be shaky to believe in God, but it's more slippery not to. Wouldn't you agree with that from Psalm 73? Psalm 73 has shown us that when we doubt the goodness of God, when we envy the prosperity of the wicked, we do this because as sinners, we believe God is stingy, that he isn't good, and that he's not generous enough to make us happy. That's what Psalm 73 is telling us. But what has God done? God has furnished the ultimate proof forever and all time that he is good and that he is graciously generous to make us happy forever. And the proof is Jesus. God has proven he is good. Because of Jesus, we know that God is always better than the prosperity of the faithless. And in our problem of pain, only Jesus is the true and satisfying answer for the question of the problem of pain. So in view of Psalm 73 here, doubt your doubts, confess and repent of your sin of spiritual envy, trust and follow Jesus, and find that even in your suffering, God is your strength and your portion forever. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we praise you for your everlasting goodness, for your grace towards sinners like us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We confess and repent, Lord, that we are envious, that we treasure other things more than you. So Lord, renew us, restore us, reorient our hearts to treasure you above all things. If there's any here today, Lord, who haven't placed their trust in you, I pray that you will open their eyes to really see, that you will take out their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh to trust, Lord, even in their doubt, even in their suffering. May they trust and taste and see that you are good. And we ask all of this in the perfect and glorious and gracious and good name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.